Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Paula Scatolani and Rachel Lewis Marlowe for part one of their discussion on applying attachment theory to eating disorder treatment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, July 7th. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, I'm going to be interviewing two people on the podcast at the same time. They are co-developers of a program called Embodied Recovery, and this is an eating disorder treatment program that we're going to be talking about. So let me tell you a little bit about both of the women who will be on the show today. The first one is Paula Scatoloni, and um, she is a somatic-based psychotherapist and a certified eating disorder specialist and a somatic experiencing practitioner from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She's worked in the field of eating disorders for over two decades, and she's also served as the eating disorder coordinator at Duke University for nine years and has taught extensively on the etiology and treatment of eating disorders at different workshops, conferences, trainings, etc. She co-developed the first intensive outpatient program for eating disorders in the United States with Dr. Anita Johnston. Paul is passionate about increasing awareness of the effectiveness of somatic modalities in the treatment of disordered eating and hopes to pursue research on the effectiveness of somatic therapy within the eating disorders population in the near future. Our second guest is Rachel Lewis Marlowe, and she is a somatically integrative psychotherapist, and she's duly licensed in counseling and therapeutic massage and body work. She is an advanced practitioner of sensory motor psychotherapy and has advanced training and 25 years of experience in other somatic therapies, including cranial sacral therapy, energetic osteopathy, oncology massage, and aromatherapy. Rachel is also a private consultant to eating disorder treatment facilities and provides ongoing training and supervision to clinical and support staff in the programmatic implementation of the embodied recovery model. She is also in private practice in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I'm very thrilled to introduce both Paula and Rachel to the podcast today, and they will be coming right up. Get ready for an immersive, in-depth series of discussions featuring the one and only Michael Trout alongside Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Coming soon to the Knowledge Center is Navigating Hollowed Ground, insights on how attachment impacts who we are and how we serve others. Using select readings from Michael Trout's upcoming book release, Michael and Karen will dive deep into four topics presented in four sessions. Participants will receive the readings prior to each meeting to deepen the discussion and enhance the experience. And since the readings come directly from Trout's book, This Hollowed Ground Four Decades in Infant Mental Health, you're getting advanced excerpts from the book. For more information or to register for the sessions, head to tkcchaddock.org. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host here, uh, and I am enthused, very enthused about our guests that we have today. We have with us Paula Scataloni, um, who is from Durham, North Carolina, and Rachel Lewis Marlowe, joining us from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. These women are both experienced uh, therapists. Um, and have developed a model in working with eating disorders heavily based in attachment theory. And the model is called Embodied Recovery. So Paula and Rachel, welcome here this morning. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. Nice to We're be here with you. Very pleased to be here. Yeah. You know, it's so good to have both of you. And I have thought very often over the years about the, the relationship between attachment and eating disorders. And actually, um, my mentor in the adult attachment interview, Miriam Steele, um, has done a fair amount of research on um, the impact of body image and attachment theory. Um, and so, but I haven't seen, you know, a lot out there that's really linking the two of these very effectively. So maybe we could just um, first start with sharing with the audience a little bit about um, your informal background, as I like to say, and then just get into generally how you see eating disorders related to attachment theory. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Rachel. Um, a little bit about my background informally. I think um, what I what I can say is that I've been weaving the body and um, cognition and motion together pretty much for my entire life. I've been studying dance and psychology and movement and hands-on body work and then my master's in counseling. And it was this continual weaving that brought me to the study of sensory motor psychotherapy. Um, and that is what connected me eventually with the eating disorder community. Um, and I think it's a really beautiful marriage of, um, of treatment approach and, and population because eating disorders occurs in the body. It's the body speaking and being able to understand the language that the body speaks about um, how it makes sense of the world, how we connect to the world, and when we need to disconnect from the world is, is really important in understanding our relationship with ourselves, with the world, and with food. Yes, so yes, yes. That's right. my me in a nutshell yes very good and and paula yeah um, with us how you found your way to this specific work well my path was a little different than rachel's i um came into the field specifically through eating disorders mm -hmm. so some of my mentors were the very early pioneers carolyn costin and anita johnston and and renfrew renfrew really raised me and renfrew was a relational model feminist perspective and so I always had a lens that I carried that eating disorders had to do with relationship. And in my work um, with Anita, we, we studied from a Jungian perspective, looking at eating disorders as a metaphor and a metaphor for our relationship um, with ourselves and with others. So I've always held that lens. And But now I think um, the big step for me when I came to North Carolina and started studying somatic experiencing and sensory motor psychotherapy is... Um, 
has been to look at the the body as a metaphor as well and the story that the body is telling about the attachment system and the interplay between the eating disorder behaviors and the body and mm. so now i weave together all of that and um i feel like um what we bring to the field is is sort of the next layer of understanding eating disorders there there's a significant amount of people in the field that do understand that relationship is important um but I, I do not think that I don't think they know how to work with it though. Yes. <laughs> it, or, or actually, no, that's not, that's no. not completely fair. I think they, they, they work with it, but not, um, not completely enough. And, and I think everything in the field is sort of maintains this body phobia that is inherent in eating disorders. And what we are trying to do is to bring it down into the body and understanding how we have an innate physiological need for connection. And we also have an innate physiological capacity and drive for attachment that can be interfered with in through different experiences, um, some physiological experiences, some social social experiences um, or sociological experiences, um, and that that impacts our bottom-up support for relationship and digestion. Um, yeah. Did that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for that from both of you. So, you know, in looking at um, attachment, attachment theory, um, I know that like many disorders, um, the pendulum has kind of swung in lots of different directions with eating disorders, um, particularly anorexia. There was a very strong focus um, on the dysfunction of the family and creating the anorexic. Um, lots of you know harsh family blaming. I think um, I uh, I do uh, think more recently that the approaches are, are trying not to, to be that way. I mean, attachment-based family therapy is being used, but I think not in such a blaming way. Um, but then also um, looking at physiological components, and I read one study um, that was related to some of the research being put out at the University of Chicago Clinic where we, we talked about the Maudsley approach, um, and that if one parent has an eating disorder there's a, such a strong genetic predisposition that there's a 80% chance that one of the children will have an eating disorder. And I don't have the citation for that or anyway, anything. I mean, I could find it, but what I'm saying is there's this like big swing, you know, first, you know, we're looking at all family system and, and a social relationship and, and all of this. Now we're going all the way medical model, you know, there's some kind of genetic marker here that is just like so strong that no matter what you do, uh, the, the child of someone with an eating disorder is going to have a very high likelihood of having an eating disorder. Um, could you speak to, to some of those ideas? I see you guys nodding your heads and, you know, um, so I, I, I like to try to bring in for our audience current thinking and things that are being yes. set out there as well as getting your, picking your brain about that as well as your specific model that you use. Sure. Do you want to go first, yeah. Paul? I mean, my initial reaction is something that you know I often find when I go to eating disorder conferences, where there would there would be a 
piece over here and a piece over here and a piece over here, but no one was linking them all together. (laughs) And so it wasn't until I started to study um, physiology, our our, um, development of, of regulation, through uh, from you know preconception, conception, birth, and the early years of life, that um, I began to come up with a hypothesis of what I thought was occurring, and so so for me, rather than oh this person has an eighty percent chance of developing an eating disorder because the mother had the eating disorder, the focus is still on the eating disorder, which is the problem. You know, the eating disorder is the red herring. It, it, we need to be focusing on physiology and on attachment dynamics. And if we understand the mother's physiology and epigenetics and what's happening in the womb during those early you know, years, uh, that first year of um, conception, if we understand mother's own attachment system and the family's attachment dynamics that is a better indicator than having the mother with just having an eating disorder is the only indicator so we have to go backwards and beyond the obvious Mm -hmm. do you want to sort of speak to that as well yeah well um give me a minute the thoughts were clear in my head in a a second ago so getting them out into words um seems to be a challenge this morning um i think there's a couple things that i want to add would be um, this idea of the genetic um, markers. I believe what they're finding is that there's not like there's this one gene that uh, this is going to, if you've got this gene, you have a predisposition. Um, The predisposition for the development of eating disorders has to do with the resiliency of of your nervous system and particularly of your ventral vagal capacity. Right, and that is the the resiliency of that system of your social engagement system, which supports digestion, is is determined by a number of different factors. Some of it is genetic, and some of it is what is epigenetic, and then other things have to do with your early life experiences that are bringing it online and organizing it. And that has to do with co-regulation and who in your attachment system is able to function as your external prefrontal cortex and your external social engagement system, your ventral vagal system. That's one reason why we really want to look at who is available in your attachment system. I think this idea of the swing between, like, what is the role of the family, and is the family the cause of it or not? I mean, certainly there's genetic factors. There are, um, you know, early life experiences that determine uh, our our resiliency. But what I like to, to think about is not so much is the family the cause of this, but what that the family is the best medicine. Right, that that what we're looking at are, are deficits in an attachment system, and who better than your family, either your family of origin or your family of choice, to help build and bring in what was missing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's the medicine. Mm-hmm. 
right? That's what helps recovery. And so if we can get recruitment and look at, okay, what can we bring in in relationship that is going to support the integration of the ventral vagal system, your ability to relate to your environment and to yourself, and therefore food. There's one other piece that's not often mentioned, and I wonder if we're going to be seeing this more and more in the research is, are there instances and experiences that interrupt attachment that do not have to do with mother, that have to do with the birth experience, mm -hmm. that have to do with, you know, um, it could be as extreme as near death. It could be separation from mother for a period of time after birth yeah. um, that we're just not considering or just not researching. And um, I think that there's yeah. lots of information that yeah. we could flesh this out in a more detailed and, way. And then I think another really important thing that we address in our, in our model is that our attachment figures are different at different points in our life and they impact our physiology in the same way. So, um, you know, there's what is happening in prenatally, there's what's happening in those first few years of life because I've got certain developmental tasks. But then at puberty, when I have a, maybe a similar developmental task, but with a different aspect of who I am as a human being, I still have to embody, but rather than just embodying you know, my vital functions and my ability to exist. I'm embodying my sexuality. In that situation, my attachment figure may not be my prenatal environment, but it is my society or my peer group. And whether or not that is providing a safe container for me to emerge that aspect of self into, um, it's going to impact my physiology around that aspect of who I am as a person. So we have to look at our attachment figures as different. Sometimes it is a physiological a attachment figure. Sometimes it's a social. Sometimes it's a, so a sociological or a societal attachment figure. And it all impacts our individual physiology in really mm -hmm. profound ways. You know, another thing um, I would like to interject here and hear your thoughts on, um, I am a big reader of Mary Piper's work. Um, she wrote Reviving Ophelia, which, um, you know, is probably her best known book, but I read every book that she writes. I'm kind of a Mary Piper, you know, gr groupie or something. And, you know, she speaks so much in Reviving Ophelia and all of her books. Uh, she has a background also as an anthropologist. So she's always looking heavy, heavily at cultural aspects um, and looking at the impact of cultural expectations of thinness, of body image. Um, and we haven't uh, talked about that directly yet. Um, and I would like to hear some of your, again, that's taking it really out of the individual and perhaps even out of the family system, um, but looking at the broader culture's impact on how people are feeling about their bodies um, and, and being in their bodies. Could you speak to that for a minute? Yeah. I, this, is, this is Rachel again. I think the first thing I would do would be to maybe even tweak that, that, that question, that it's not just about how they're feeling about their bodies, it's about how their bodies are feeling. Yes, very good. Right? Yes, and, and that's really, really important for us to understand is that when we're talking about eating disorders, oftentimes we think that eating disorders result of 
because of how someone thinks about their body. And that's not really what it is. Eating disorders are our bodies speaking directly about their experience, our experience around belonging, our experience about expressing will and want, our experience around our ability to defend ourselves, and our experience about making sense of the world around us and inside us. So that's the first thing we have to really understand. Um, and I think that, um, when we're talking about um, how our bodies experience um, how societal ex society expectations, right? And it's very, very clear. For some people, walking out of the house is putting them at risk of intense rejection or physical assault. And that is communicated through um, neuroception, right? Subcortically, straight into our bodies. And there's a sense of, I'm not safe in this world. It is not okay, right? And whether that is because I am walking around in a large body, or whether I'm walking around in a female body, or I'm walking around in a in a male body that is not of the prescribed shape and size, or I'm walking around in a body that doesn't fit a gender that we talk about, mm. right? Or race. Or, or race. <laughs> or, or it is expressing a, a religious orientation, right? There's anything, anytime we walk into the world, we are getting a message of, I belong here or I don't. Mm. Right? That's so and powerful. That, That's really that, powerful, Rachel. That lands in our physiology. And, and so it's not just, am I in danger? It's also, am I safe? And that's another really, really important distinction that we have to make around attachment is that a lot of times we'll talk to people who say that they're, you know, they're, um, they're doing something because it makes them feel safe when it's actually not that they're feeling safe, but that they're feeling protected, that it is an engagement of their defensive system and they're feeling protected because protection is, is something that is the absence of a danger. Mm -hmm. But safety is the presence of something that resonates, mm -hmm. that welcomes, that allows, right? So they aren't the same thing, but mm -hmm. we have been sort of taught that safety is protection. And that's one reason why why we aren't really getting to what's going on with eating disorders because in order to digest food and ingest food we have to be safe not just protected hmm. yeah yeah very very interesting um did you want to add, add something paula <clears throat> so your question was about body image yeah, yeah. Is that correct? and culture 
and culture. Yeah. Cultural impact (laughs) on eating disorders is really what I was trying to to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, no, I I think Rachel's going to done a great job. Um, And I do believe that the um, attempts to feel um, like you fit in via your size or your shape or what you do to your body is the is the best option someone can come up with mm-hmm. when they don't understand the dynamics of what's happening. Right. And clients who develop eating disorders, individuals who develop eating disorders, also are predisposed to be quite sensitive. So they're neurocepting these messages that Rachel speaks about. Um, the, the, um, detection of danger or of rejection is happening um, without their consciousness be, and they're so sensitive mm-hmm. that they're picking it up yeah. all over the place um, yeah. and whether that's overt or covert and mm-hmm. and so um, I think in our work bringing light to that and helping clients understand their sensitivity and Mm -hmm. and the world that they're navigating and the messages that are in that world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah whether it's safe to be here yes yes very helpful well i know we're getting ready to wind down on our first part here of of the podcast um and I know part two, we're going to talk a little bit more about specific application and how you work with some of your clients and how you look at attachment, not just in the four traditional classifications, but that it's more nuanced than that. And and you think about that um, in some different ways that I think is going to be really helpful. But um, is there is there any uh, closing words here for for part one that um, either of you wanted to share? I think that um, when people, when I was first talking about this approach and I, yes. I first did a, 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 a webinar um, when I was working at a, at a treatment facility, I was talking about the importance of, you know, why does attachment matter when we're talking about eating disorders? Yes. Um, I think the simplest way to understand this is we're mammals. <laughs> if we don't attach, we don't survive and eating ingesting is an attachment action i am so intrigued by the way you talk about that and i'm going to want to talk about that more in our next segment in terms of how you talk about that Um, because that's a different way of phrasing it than i think many people think so um, this has been fascinating so far and listeners um, we are going to end our part one of this really intriguing conversation about embodied recovery um, with Paula Scataloni and Rachel Lewis Marlowe. Please join us next week for part two. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Paula Scataloni and Rachel Lewis Marlowe on applying attachment theory to eating disorder treatment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, July 7th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Attention.